Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Just to start things off, I got a bit of feedback from Al Tweeten. Al Tweeten serves with the Queen's Own Rifles, and he's a musician there, and he's also served in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Essentially, on one of the previous episodes, I had said something to the effect that W.G. Barker was the top scorer in World War I, and Al corrects that to say it was actually Billy Bishop with 72 kills. However, Mr. Barker was still the most decorated Canadian serviceman. W.G. Barker also had the reputation of never losing a wingman in the time when flyers lasted only three or four flights. Al finishes his feedback by saying, Keep up the good work with the podcast. He admires the content and time that I devote to it. Thanks a lot, Al. That's great. So a quick check on iTunes. iTunes, there's no new comments or ratings. Just remember that iTunes ratings help other people find the podcast. So just take a second, go on to iTunes and give me a rating. Nothing new in the guest book either. Please take a moment and fill out an entry in the guest book. I appreciate the feedback. Now there is a new feature, something that comes with my WordPress program that I use to post the episodes online. It's a bit of a statistic site tracker. And what it tells me is that today... The 2nd of February 2014, I've had two visitors from Canada and one visitor from Spain. So that's neat. I think it's interesting to see that people from overseas are interested in the podcast and interested in the website. I can also use that feature to check out the visits to the website for all times. I can see that Canada, I've had 181 visits. The United States is 29, and then Ukraine is 3, Germany, France, Brazil, Spain, Italy are 2, and then one each for Kenya, Chile, Peru, Czech Republic, Mexico, and Hong Kong. I hope they're enjoying the show, and it'd be great to have some feedback from them. Today my guest is a good friend, Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson. Grant joined the Ontario Regiment in the summer of 1987, and by December of 1988 he was promoted to Master Corporal. And while that might seem unusual, at the time, that was a bit of an experiment going on, not only in the Armored Corps, but in the infantry as well. The logic being that if you could take a civilian off the street, put him through officer training, and come out the other end with a platoon commander, why couldn't you do it with NCMs and create master corporals, junior leaders? For the most part, this experiment was successful. However, the standards were very high, and the number of dropouts and failures was also very high. I know several people that have attempted it on the infantry side, and they didn't make it through. That was through the program known as Reserve NCO Training Program, or RNTP, and those that made it through made excellent leaders. Grant had deployed to the Middle East as a member of the United Nations Disengagement Observer Force, and he also deployed to the former Yugoslavia in 1994 and 1995. 
Now, although Grant started as a member of the Ontario Regiment in Oshawa, he moved to Oakville and he transferred to the Queen's York Rangers, another Armoured Corps unit. There he rose to the appointment of Regimental Sergeant Major and the rank of Chief Warrant Officer that he holds today. Now, he had planned to take my spot, uh, not immediately succeeding me, but he had planned to take my spot in Sierra Leone on Op Sculpture, but that mission was closing out and he didn't end up getting the spot which is fine because he simply changed gears and went on op attention, which is in Afghanistan, and he was a mentor and advisor to the Afghan National Army Training Center. In an interesting twist of fate, Grant has moved from the Armored Corps into the infantry, and he has currently been appointed as the RSM of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. Here's my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson. Chief Warrant Officer Lawson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. So you and I met when I was a company sergeant major with the Toronto Scottish Regiment, and you were a squadron sergeant major with the Queen's York Rangers, and we were paired up during a training group exercise in Meaford, and I think that was in about 2004. That, that sounds about right. If I recall, it was probably spring and muddy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I don't know any other time that it wouldn't be muddy in Meaford, except for when you're in clay or snow, but anyhow. So I sent you the questions in advance. Have you had a chance to review the questions? I have indeed. There's so much to talk about, I guess. I've been mulling around what my answers will be, but we can have a good go at it here today. Excellent. Why don't you let me know why you joined the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, I guess I'm not really sure why I joined the Canadian Armed Forces. However, the person I was as a young fella was a kid that read all the World War II history books out of the school library, signed them out over and over and over again. I was a kid that liked to watch war movies. I was a kid that liked to read books, uh, build models of tanks and, and airplanes and, and things like that. And uh, just kind of naturally progressed to one day at school on Remembrance Day, a classmate showed up in an Army cadet uniform. I didn't even know the organization had existed. And that was it. I was like, where did you get that? What is that? I need to be part of that. And probably in the next two or three weeks, I was sporting my little... Uh, Army cadet uniform at the Oshawa Armories. That's something I always remarked about members of the Armored Corps, and without generalizing and painting everyone with the same brush, they always have that interest in models, and it always helps with the AFV recognition task that also goes along with being a member of the Armored Corps. Yeah, it sure does. I used to ace all those tests when I had them back in the day. <laughs> so you told us a little bit about what you were like when you joined. So what was the world like when you joined? Well, I guess 1987, I joined, you know, some of my friends I had been in Army cadets with said they were going to join the SYEP program in the summer. The world back then, I guess there was still a bit of a Canada's Cold War adventure in uh, Germany. There'd been some conflicts like Panama and Grenada, the Falklands, that kind of thing. And Canada had an army that no one really had heard much about. Yeah, it's interesting that that's been brought up by other people who joined or served during the 80s. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, joining the reserves from the cadets was probably a natural progression for me because some friends had been doing it. I'd already had a pattern of life of going down to the armories once or twice a week anyways. Back then, the, the world was pretty, I think it was pretty peaceful because, uh, you know, back then people would say, what are you going to join the army for? What if we go to war? You'll have to go. It was never a consideration for me personally. Just wanted to serve. Right. I remember thinking that as well. A little bit of complacency as members of the Junior Eggs Corps. Yeah. So moving forward, what was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? 
You know, my whole experience in the military has been memorable, and it's been highlighted with events. I guess there's two things. I always remember events by the event, or I remember events by the group of people I was with at certain times or places. So there's many. You know, I remember deploying to the Middle East in 1989 as a very young master corporal, first time away from home quite memorable. Not a lot of people had the opportunity to go way back then. I still remember parts of that tour to this day, particularly because I got to travel into Damascus quite a bit. And seeing what's happening in Damascus now, I don't even recognize that city on TV when I see the footage of what's going on there. Certain promotions, certain events, things I was, people I've been with, seeing the state of the former Republic of Yugoslavia, namely Bosnia, when I was on tour there, quite memorable. The guys I work with, quite memorable. Lots of good times rolling around in the back of a grizzly in the winter in Yugoslavia. Lots of jokes, lots of fun, but all very serious at the same time. And most recently, a uh, mission in Afghanistan, being trusted with a portfolio that was a little bit out of my arcs and given the opportunity to do that, as well as just having the opportunity to be challenged and move groups, ideas around to the way I wanted to because I, I guess because I've perhaps garnered a, a level of trust or expectations with the people I'd worked for. That whole experience for me has been quite memorable. So going back a bit, when did you serve in Yugoslavia and what was your role there? Well, that's an interesting story. I uh, I served, I guess it was the tour in 1993-94 with Unprefor. I had deployed with the Royal Canadian Dragoons. At the time, I was a Class B reservist at the Intero Regiment in Oshawa. And I was on my way to warrant officer when the chance for a tour came up. I was a sergeant. I'd had my 6B course. I went into the old Toronto District headquarters on uh, Avenue Road and talked to the ops guy there. And I said, how am I going to get on this mission? He said, well, they're only taking corporals. I mean, that was the only show in town. That was the only show that was had come up for years and years and years. And I said, well, I heard people are taking their rank down to get on, on those missions. They said, yeah, that's what everybody seems to be doing. That's almost the expectation and I said, well, let's do that. So uh, that was exciting for me. Being a crewman, experienced crewman, uh, deploying with the Dragoons to Bosnia was quite exciting and fun and served me well later in, in my career with connections and people I had met in the Corps and the Dragoons, some of whom I'm still friends with to this day. Now, you had to take down your rank to go to Bosnia, but you didn't have to do that to go to Afghanistan. When did you go to Afghanistan and what was your role there? Well, I deployed to Afghanistan in uh, December 2012. It was a long and drawn-out process. I was originally supposed to go where you had served in Sierra Leone, and while I was doing the pre-training for that, the mission was starting to get closed down. So some quick phone calls and contacts and things like that, I managed to get moved over onto the Afghanistan mission, which causes some trouble and strife at the house. But it was easy transition. Just finished my training in Kingston, came home for the Thanksgiving weekend, and reported straight to Val Cartier for the Afghanistan rotation pre-training. The job I held there was an advisory role. I was advising at the military training center in the north of Afghanistan, just outside of Mazar Sharif. This is a school that takes in 1,400 recruits every 10 weeks or so. And they also run what we would call a PLQ, a language course, a combat medics course, drivers courses, platoon twice C's course. My job there was to advise the staff at that school on vehicle maintenance plans, logistics plans, the most interesting part was the school was in a transition of moving into a brand new facility. The brand new facility that they had had while the you know, five or six years ago had already started falling apart. So they were, they were getting a new one built. This facility was a facility that we would 
any unit, any brigade, regular or reserve, would be happy to have the facility that was being built for the RMTC North folks in Afghanistan. It was uh, 60 buildings, self-contained mess hall, showers, bathrooms, barracks. It was getting wired for telephone and internet, had a parade square, had its own maintenance shed, QMs and everything. So it was about 60 buildings. It was a $35 million plus project. The time I spent in Afghanistan, I was the end user's representative at the table. So I had to represent basically the Afghan army's interest at the table with the contractor who was building it and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who were supervising the build. And of course, the chain of command I was working for as well. Right. So it was quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned the Ontario Regiment, but when I knew you, you were a member of the Queen's York Rangers. So how many cap badges have you worn? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I'm on my third cap badge. It's uh, interesting. Happy to say they're all regimental cap badges. The first one being uh, at the Ontario Regiment. I left the Ontario Regiment when I got uh, civilian employment in Oakville at the fire department and had transferred then to the Queen's York Rangers. And that would have been, I guess, in 2000, I think, or 2001. So I finished up in 2012 at the Rangers as the regimental sergeant major after uh, five years as regimental sergeant major there. Uh, and then after my tour to Afghanistan, I uh, rebadged once again. I was given the opportunity, and it's it is quite a privilege to serve again as a regimental sergeant major, this time a lot closer to home at the Royal Hamilton Way Infantry in Hamilton. Well, that's an infantry regiment. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll talk more about that in one of the follow-on questions. But anyhow. <laughs> yeah, sure. So who was your greatest influence or who's the most memorable character that you've encountered? And before you answer that question, it's interesting to know that Ryerson maybe listed you as his greatest influence. And I know that you were quite flattered to know that. Yeah, it floored me when I heard that. It's a mutual admiration society, I guess. You know, you always take a little bit from people you work for, but if you, when you sit down and think about it, we also take a lot from people that work for us or work under us as well. There's always tricks of the trade and things to learn from watching everybody do their business. Yeah, I was quite floored when I heard that in the podcast. So who is your greatest influence or the most memorable character that you've encountered? Well, I guess I could go back to my early years as a young junior NCO and a young senior NCO back at the Ontario Regiment. If you can picture, the Ontario Regiment was a regiment that served in the Second World War and it's a one-unit armory in a one-unit town out in Oshawa. There's still quite a bit of regimental family around. It was quite an interesting place. If I could describe it, a place that when you look through the photographs in the mess of, for example, the senior NCOs or the sergeants and warrant officers mess photographs annually, some of the sergeants major and warrant officers and chief warrant officers that I'd known as a cadet and then up into the unit were in photographs in the mess with their fellow senior NCOs that had been in the Second World War, although those guys were a lot older, but they had all the war ribbons and from the Second War in Korea, some of them, on their uniforms in these mess photos. There's quite a uh, regimental spirit, uh, quite a regimental patina of service, military service, and regimental life. There's kind of that group of people, a group of vets that hung around, but there's also a group of senior kind of soldiers that used to come around every day and meet for lunch. And these would be a group of guys like uh, Master Warrant Officer Reg Turner, Harry Sutton, Les Burgess, uh, Martin, a fellow that had been in the Black Watch, uh, Bobby Woodward, uh, Rick Spratley, who's uh, still serving. Uh, I think he's on his way to Master Warrant Officer now. 
they'd all come by the armories, meet for lunch, and drag me out with them because I was working down there. And it felt like a five-year-old sitting at the adult table, <laughs> if that makes anything to you, just to listen to them talk about the way to do business, the way they do business, the way they talk about things, to listen to the stories, especially since some of them were career regular force soldiers. That group of people was something else. The most memorable one, and to this day I always talk about him as a mentor, was a fellow named Bob Johnson. He just passed away a few years ago. He was known as R.L. Johnson. He was a gruff-looking character with ginger hair, a beard, because he had a scarred-up face. He had joined the Queen's Own Rifles, regular soldier in the early 60s, transferred to the Patricias, finished a career in the Patricias, and had come to the Ontario Regiment when he basically, I guess, he'd settled in Oshawa and had joined the unit and immediately took on a job as a a quartermaster sergeant, or the regimental quartermaster sergeant. This guy, he would not do drill. He would would never walk around with his jacket done up. He's an incredible nemesis of any sergeant major that you could think of. However, his ability to share ideas, to care for the soldiers, to mentor an NCO on what was right and what was wrong was, was just so invaluable. He basically could do Anything he want, he was what I would say was he would be a I would describe as a rogue soldier, <laughs> but did not harm the unit that he belonged to. Always stayed in the box. I mean, he was a fantastic role model. One of his claims to fame was he'd been Lou McKenzie's General Lou McKenzie of the Sarajevo fame platoon sergeant or in his platoon as a sergeant when he was a brand new lieutenant in the army. One day, if I ever get a chance to meet General McKenzie, I'm sure I'll ask him to share some more stories about that. Right. Yeah, R.L. Johnson would have to be my most, the most memorable character I've ever met. And there's a small group of us that still serve in the army. Some of us are chief warrant officers and have gone on to other things as well. That will say the same thing. Right. Quite a memorable character. Absolutely. Served as well. So we're on to the final question. Maybe the most interesting question, but anyhow, your other your other answers were interesting as well. But what I can't even say the question properly because the question is written down for me. What was the greatest challenge you've had to overcome? But maybe it's what is the greatest challenge you had to overcome? But I'll let you answer either one of those two ways. Yeah, um, there's been many challenges, personal, but I've also been part of many challenges that the Army's gone through as well. So maybe I'll answer I'll throw you a couple answers back. All right. And, and let's go back to the, I think it might be 1990, interesting challenge that I had to deal with as a junior NCO, brand new master corporal. They announced that women would be permitted to serve in the combat arms in the Army. I guess pretty much free access, although I, I seem to think, I think at the time the submarine part was still had a dotted line on it. That's right. In the middle of a summer training program, they announced that this was going to happen. And I seem to remember that a general came from Ottawa, a female general whose name I wouldn't remember now, set all the female candidates down and you know, basically said, I know you're all slated to go off to be musicians, medics, clerks, truck drivers, and mechanics after you finish your basic training, but if any of you have the aptitude scores to go on and be combat engineers, infantry, artillery, or armored crewmen, you can make the change. You have two weeks to, to decide and you can make the change. So a lot of them did. You know, I was right there at the ground level so it was interesting. We just got on with it. I would say it was well-led. People did it with, they, they took their orders and they marched on. Serving in the army that, that one time if someone asked you how many females were in your unit, you could say there's six. There's four in the order room, one in the MIR, and one the mechanic, uh, weapons tech, up at the uh, maintenance facility. And it was easy. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, it kind of, we went through this challenge of, how many women are in your unit that are combat arms? 
and you would say, well, there's 15 women in the unit, six of them are combat arms, and nine of them aren't. To go to an interesting discussion I had just last year in Afghanistan as the U.S. Army, uh, the U.S. military was going to announce the same program. I had some good discussions with them about that, some of the senior leadership I work with there. If someone asked me now as a regimental sergeant major at the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, how many women are in my unit, period, it would be almost a negative response if I could give you that answer. Right. For me to even understand that there's a difference between a male and a female in my army unit would not be the desired response in our military. Having these discussions with U.S. soldiers that are about to go through this, I just couldn't even fathom it. So I said, well, I think you've got about 20 years to figure it out because it seems like that's uh, <laughs> that's about how long it took us here. So was it a challenge? I guess it wasn't a challenge. I grew up with it as a young NCO and as a young leader. But I definitely recognize that as a challenge for our allies. So having, uh, I guess, probably privileged to have gone through that challenge uh, at the ground level. I guess another challenge uh, most recently is being appointed the personal challenge, of course, would be being appointed the regimental sergeant major of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry here in Hamilton, you know, being an armored crewman and going to an infantry unit. That's not the challenge. I mean, the infantry and the armor are combat arms. The work of a chief war officer in a combat arms regiment is pretty much the same thing, uh, as long as you understand the career progression and things like that. The challenge, I find, was just the privilege and the overwhelming sense of getting it right that you have to do when you go to a regiment uh, with the history of the Royal Hamlin Light Infantry and you have to insert yourself into that senior position, uh, not knowing anybody not even knowing the past RSMs, the past colonels, the members of the association, who runs the band, who runs the museum, where are the two locations, what's the recent history, what's the recent past history, who are the key players, who are the formal leaders, who are the informal leaders, what's the succession plan, is the succession plan something I'm used to, does it have to be reinvented, or am I going to move in there and shake things up, so that's been the challenge, it's been a personal but rewarding challenge. Most recently, it's a tradition at the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry for the uh, RSM to host the senior NCOs at home for breakfast on New Year's Day. That was interesting. I had to make sure that I wasn't getting one pulled over my eyes. So I called a couple of, I called the CO, I talked to an ex-CO, I talked to a couple of the ex-RSMs and said, oh, no, no, that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, okay, everybody come to my house on New Year's Day for breakfast. And we hosted that. So. It's been a real rewarding challenge. I mean, getting appointed chief warrant officer is a challenge in itself. When you get appointed in your comfort zone, the, the regiment you've served in, the corps you've served in, with people that you've worked with for most of your career or half your career or for 10, 15 years, you, you know who everybody is, you know how everything operates, you know uh, who the players are. That was fantastic. And it's a learning process. Right up until my last year as the regimental sergeant major at the Queen York Rangers, still learning about the Army, the military. The, the, it's almost a, a completely new career once you get to that level as a combat armed soldier. But to go to a unit where you didn't even know what door to enter <laughs> when you went for the first meeting to meet with the CO and the outgoing RSM, that's been quite a rewarding but interesting challenge. It's a, if anything, it's reinvigorated my desire to do a good job. I had the exact same thing happen to me in the city of Barrie when I went to visit what is potentially my next unit. But anyhow, the very exact same thing. How do you get yeah, in? Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is, I mean, you know, you're the, the regimental sergeant major. It is a key position in a regiment. 
you're at the head of the senior NCOs of that regiment. The senior NCOs, you know, we quite often say, and I firmly believe, are the backbone of, of the army, of the backbone of a regiment, make things happen. I've been trying to explain to some of the junior sergeants that I'm overwhelmed that I'm in the position of RSM, of sergeants at the Royal Hamilton Late Infantry. And, uh, you know, sometimes perhaps maybe they haven't been in long enough or they, they haven't thought about their careers 10 or 15 years down the road. But it's, if you believe in our regimental system and you believe in our Canadian military traditions and our, you know, our ethics and our ethos, it is a challenging and daunting experience. Our mutual friend Derek Murphy, when he took over as a second go-around as RSM at uh, 48 Highlanders, that's the first thing I said to him before the parade. I said, look at you, you're, you're the RSM of the 48 Highlanders of Canada. And he just looked at me and says, yeah, I know, I can't believe it. He's standing there in all his Highland kit. He says, I just, I'm standing here and I, and I can't believe it. And, and this is a fellow that's been the RSM of another fine uh, Highland regiment as well. So it's an interesting challenge. And I think it's going to happen more and more as it gets harder and harder to train, create, and grow senior ranking, senior NCOs in the, in the reserves. Well, the other thing is our training system, the way the training system used to be, it was pushing people through the courses and promotions and moving them onwards and upwards. Now we have a very young batch of chief warrant officers who really don't want to give up serving. And now that the courses are a little bit longer, it's a little bit more difficult to get on the courses, it's harder to create new chief warrant officers. So we have that bit of a delta that chief warrant officers get to have a second chance perhaps every once in a while. Yeah. We definitely get the best of both worlds with the opportunity to perhaps serve again as a chief warrant officer and or when that work is done to commission and, and continue serving. Unlike our, uh, our the lieutenant colonels that we work work for, their career path, there's uh, not as many doors to go through. Absolutely. So we've come to the end of the four questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd like to say? I know you're working on a project of your own. I mean, I do the podcast. You do something that's also of interest to yourself. Oh, yes. I have a uh, habit of collecting toy soldiers. That would be my hobby. I uh, collect uh, old toy soldiers, new toy soldiers. Uh, I don't play with them. I just kind of (laughs) display them in glass cabinets, maybe make a little scene out of them uh, and just display them in in a glass cabinet. I also paint figures and soldiers as well. I've received some awards for things that I've painted. I enjoy it. It's uh, something I can sit down with and focus on a paintbrush and paint and the color wheel and putting layers of paint onto something to make it look as real as possible. So what that turned into for me was that uh, I also discovered that I had a hard time finding places to buy these things. So I created a little uh, business online. It's uh, www.toysoldiertoronto.com. That's my website. That's me. And I buy and sell toy soldiers and I ship them all over the world. It's quite interesting. I get customers from all over the world buying things and my wife will wrap them up for me and take them to the post office and and ship them all over the place. I'll make sure I post a link to your website in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. So is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize and wrap up your episode? Well, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast. It's a fantastic project you have. What I like most about your podcast is that it's about the people that serve and not about the service that those people serve in. The people in the military are the, are the most interesting things about the military. They come from all walks of life with all kinds of different personalities. And I think um, as this grows, you're going to be able to capture the wide-ranging group of people that we have pulling together 
in the army or in the military at large, people with multiple master's degrees to scraping away at their high school diplomas, all pulling together on one team for the army or the military at large. And it's a, it's a fantastic place for people to have an opportunity to do that. And I think you're capturing it. Yeah, I agree. I'm having a little bit of trouble breaking into the Navy and the Air Force. And hopefully some people who are listening to this right now will say, oh, I know how to help with that. Yeah, definitely getting that Canadian Forces flavor. And there's also another area that I'm having difficulty breaking into. And if you look at the images of my guests, that area that I'm having difficulty breaking into will become quite apparent once you look at all the faces. But nevertheless, hopefully I can find some help in getting into those areas that I'm struggling with and also getting out of the GTA. But it's a fun project. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy the contacts that I'm making and and I look forward to producing each episode. And it's exciting getting it when I hit the upload button. Yeah, perfect. Well, I'll spread the word out Hamilton way. I already have some ideas of people I'll try and send over to you. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for being a guest, Grant. I really appreciate you taking the time on this Sunday morning to talk to me and talk to me about your experiences with not only the Queen's York Rangers, but the Ontario Regiment and now the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. My privilege. I'm, I'm sorry it took so long to, to get together. Oh, no worries. It's all good. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.